Chapter 16 of Tales of the Royal Irish Constabulary by Unknown. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16 Father John. The tiny village of Anagh lies on the eastern slope of the Slivenham Mountains, about fifteen miles due east of Ballybor, and consists of one dirty street with roughly forty nine miserable tumble down hovels and one grand slated two storied house as usual the shop and abode of the village gombeen man who also kept the post-office not because he was the most honest man in the village but because there was nobody else able to do so a good many years ago on a bitter winter's night a tinker answering to the name of bernie macandrew drove his ass-cart into the village of annock and called at the only shop to know if there were any kettles or cans to be mended the night was so cold and wet that the old shopkeeper in the kindness of his heart bade the shivering tinker put up his ass and spend the night the tinker stayed and never left macandrew's stock in trade when he arrived at annock on that winter's night consisted of half a barrel of salt herrings a kettle the usual tinker's soldering outfit a policeman's discarded tunic and the rags he stood up in within a year macandrew had buried the old shopkeeper who had lived alone for years and was beloved by all and reigned in his place being an ambitious tinker macandrew started a gombeen business with the old man's savings which he found by chance in the secret drawer of an old desk and in a very short time became the best hated and most feared man in the district at first macandrew supported sinn fein enthusiastically but when he saw law and order beginning to disappear being now a man of property he became alarmed and tried to run with the hare and the hounds macandrew's great opponent was the young parish priest father john who after serving as a chaplain with the british army in france with great distinction he had been decorated for bravery in the field by both the british and the french returned to ireland having seen enough bloodshed for his lifetime father john was a grand man both physically and morally and in the right sense of the words and if only the majority of young irish priests were up to the standard of father john there would be little trouble in ireland to-day when he became the parish priest of Anagh, father john saw at once that macandrew was fast reducing the great majority of his parishioners who were poor men with poorer mountain land to a state of slavery and realized that it only wanted two bad years in succession to put the whole parish under the gombeen man's thumb at first he tried to keep the farmers away from macandrew's shop but this they resented as it entailed a journey of many miles to the nearest town and then they had to pay nearly as much as to macandrew next he denounced macandrew and his evil practices from the altar warning the people of the consequences but in spite of all the priest could do or say the gombeen man flourished from the very first father john opposed the sinn fein movement both by word and deed and when the first sinn fein organizers appeared in his parish he quickly hunted them away but before he knew what was happening practically every young man in the parish had been enrolled whether he liked it or not as a soldier in the ira macandrew was quick to seize his chance of revenge telling the people that the priest was a secret agent of the british government hadn't he served in the british army and taken the pay of the british government an enemy of the people and that he was doing his best to stand between them and liberty in a week father john was practically an outlaw in his own parish and macandrew became the popular hero 
though he still officiated in the chapel sinn fein saw to it that he was paid no dues for nearly two years this state of affairs continued and it would have been impossible for the priest to live if the older and more sober members of his flock had not come to his house secretly in the dead of night and paid him their dues one day when feeling ran very high father john opened his daily paper to see his own death reported and a long obituary notice probably the handiwork of macandrew it was a situation common in ireland the peasants blind to the virtues of their truest friend and making a popular idol of their worst enemy it is a sad thing that many irishmen will always insist on believing what they wish to believe father john was by nature a kindly and genial man a lover of sport of a good horse and of the society of men and those two years must have been a perfect hell on earth for him not that any one was ever openly rude to him they just sent him to coventry and kept him there hoping to break his heart and that by refusing to pay him any dues they would gradually freeze him out and in his place would come one of those fire-eating young priests who would lead them to victory and freedom the summer of nineteen twenty was wet and cold with frosty nights during every month except july now if your potatoes grow in boggy land and there comes heavy rain followed by a night's frost not once but several times you will have no potatoes and probably very little crop of any kind and if your living depends on the potato crop you stand a good chance of starving unless the gombeen man will come to your assistance by november the whole parish of anach practically belonged to macandrew who held a mortgage on nearly every acre of tenanted land and proceeded to bully the people to his heart's content on a sunday morning in december at about ten o'clock the hour when the village usually began to come to life the inhabitants were startled by the screams of a woman and when they rushed to their doors saw macandrew's servant running out of the village toward father john's house macandrew had been murdered during the night without a sound and the servant had no idea of what had happened until she went to his room to see why he had not got up all macandrew's books had been burnt and afterwards the murderers must have cursed the day they did not set a light to the house as well on the next day the village woke up to find a company of auxiliaries billeted in macandrew's house and the yard full of their cars a case of out of the frying pan into the fire for some time past the police had known that men on the run were hiding in the mountains near Anak but though the area came within blake's district it was impossible to keep any control over it owing to the fact that the owenmore river and the slievenamo mountains lay between it and ballybor the auxiliaries spent the day fortifying macandrew's house and that night started operations and the inhabitants soon realized that the british empire was not yet and also ran just as it was getting dark the auxiliaries in crosleys would suddenly burst out of macandrew's yard travel perhaps five or ten miles at racing speed and then surround and round up a village or district so that the numerous gunmen who had come from the south for a rest cure found it impossible to get any sleep at all the local volunteers at once sent an s o s to dublin and received the comforting answer that a flying column would arrive shortly in the district and deal effectively with the auxiliaries in the meanwhile they were to harass the enemy by every means in their power and carry on a warfare of attrition in other words if they found one or two cadets alone if unarmed so much the better they were to murder them 
At first, the local Volunteers were very much afraid of the Auxiliaries, Sinn Fein propaganda having taught them to expect nothing but murder, rape, and looting from the scum of English prisons and asylums. But after a few days had passed, and nothing dreadful happened to man or woman, they took heart once more and started their usual warfare. The Auxiliaries were commanded by a Major Jones, and on the Sunday following their arrival in Anak, Jones left alone in a ford at an early hour to see Blake in Ballybor. The road crosses the mountains through a narrow pass, and near the top of the pass there is a small chapel, a school, a pub, and a few scattered cottages. On his return, Jones passed this chapel as the people were coming out from Mass, blew his horn, and slowed up. After passing through the crowd, he noticed a group of youth standing on the right side of the road and opened his throttle wide, thereby probably saving his life. When the car was within ten yards of the group, every man drew a pistol, and it seemed to Jones as though he was flying through a shower of bullets. However, though the car was riddled and had anyone been sitting on the other three seats they would all have been killed, Jones found himself uninjured, and the old tin Lizzie, responding well to the throttle, flew down the hill at twice the pace Henry Ford ever meant her to travel at. That evening Father John called on Jones and apologized for the outrage, and Jones at once fell under the charm of the priest. Probably his astonishment at Father John's visit had something to do with it, but in the days to come, when Father John supported his words by deeds, Jones learnt that his first impression had been a correct one. Returning in the early hours of the morning from a raiding expedition to the south of Anak, the auxiliaries were surprised to see a tall priest standing in the middle of the road and holding up his hand. Fearing a trap, there was a blind corner just behind where the priest was standing, they stopped about two hundred yards off and beckoned to the priest to advance. They were still more surprised to find that the tall priest was Father John, who, having received information after they had started that the volunteers were going to lay trees across the road at this corner in the hope of smashing up the auxiliary cars, had spent the whole night walking up and down the road in order that he might warn them of their danger. Father John drove back to Anak with the cadets, and by the time they reached the village, every cadet swore that the priest was the finest man they had yet met in Ireland, and they didn't believe there was a finer one. From that on, Father John accompanied the auxiliaries on many a stunt, and there is no doubt that he gave them every help in his power and all information which reached him. But though he would travel anywhere with them, he would never accept hospitality from them, nor would he enter MacAndrew's house. About six miles from Anak, in a hollow of the mountains, is the tiny village of Glenmuck, completely isolated from the rest of the world, and so situated that its presence was quite hidden until you literally walked on top of it. None of the inhabitants, who live chiefly by making poteen in the winter time and going to England as harvesters in the summer, possessed a cart, for the very good reason that the nearest so-called third-class road was five miles away, and only a goat track passed within a mile of the place. Here in due course arrived the flying column of the IRA, seventy strong, every man mounted on a bicycle, and armed with a British service rifle and as many pistols as he could find room for. They were also the proud possessors of a Lewis gun. As usual, the gunmen were billeted so many in each farm, and after being badly harassed for some time in the south, Glenmuck seemed like paradise to them. 
The nights were spent in dancing, card-playing, and drinking poteen. Somewhere about noon the gunmen got up, and after breakfast visited each other in their different billets after the fashion of our troops in France, walking about openly with their rifles slung over their shoulders. The Lewis gun team passed their days teaching the boys and girls of the village the mechanism of the Lewis gun. The leader's idea was to give his men much-needed rest and amusement for a few days, and then to try and ambush the auxiliaries, and probably they could have spent quite a long time resting here without the auxiliaries having the slightest suspicion of their near presence. But war seems to be made up so largely of ifs, and the if in this case proved to be Father John. When out riding on his rounds one morning, the priest noticed that most of the young people of his parish appeared to be gravitating in their best clothes towards Glenmuck, and suspecting a poteen orgy, he sternly commanded a young damsel to tell him why she was going to Glenmuck, and the girl told him. Father John rode straight back to Anak to be just in time to stop Jones from starting off on a raid in the opposite direction jones first sent off a cadet on a motor bicycle to blake at ballybor sending him a verbal outline of his plan of attack on glenmuck and asking him to cooperate with the auxiliaries from the other side of the mountains he then turned out every cadet in the place left mcandrew's house empty to take care of itself and made off at full speed in the direction of glenmuck with the priest acting as guide they reached the nearest point to Glenmuck on the road at noon, and after leaving a small guard over the Crosleys, the rest of the company set out in open order across the mountain for the flying column's lair. The gunmen had had great luck in the south for a long time, and their luck still held. A youth, making his way across the country to get a sight of the wonderful gunmen, happened to look behind him when on top of a rise, and saw, about a mile away, the oncoming auxiliaries. Being a sharp youth, he realized who they were, and ran for the village as fast as his young legs would carry him, and by chance ran straight into the leader when he entered the outskirts of the place. Reaching the hill above the village, the auxiliaries made a last desperate rush down the slope in the hope of catching the gunmen scattered in the different cottages, and so mopping them up before they could get together. But by this time the flying column had taken up positions on the top of the far slope above the village, and as the cadets reached the cottages they came under heavy machine-gun fire. Quickly realizing what had happened, Jones ordered one platoon to make a frontal attack on the gunmen's position, while he sent a second and third platoon to try to work round their flanks. The fourth platoon he kept with him, under cover, in the village. Then followed a very pretty fight for an hour, by which time the gunmen, like the boars of old, thought it was time to move on and take up a position on the next ridge jones knew that if he could only keep in close touch with the flying column it was only a question of time before blake who would be guided by the heavy firing would attack them in the rear and that they would then stand a good chance of bagging the whole lot the fight gradually worked across the mountains the gunmen retreating from ridge to ridge while the cadets stuck to them like grim death always striving to pen them down and when they retreated to drive them in the direction from which blake ought to appear late in the afternoon heavy shooting suddenly broke out behind the gunmen and the cadets redoubled their efforts to close with them 
By this time the opposing forces had worked their way down the western slopes of the mountains almost as far as the high upland bogs, and directly the gunmen realized that they were likely to be surrounded, they broke and fled down the valley, closely pursued by police and cadets. Unfortunately, the light was getting bad, and the gunmen's luck still held good. When they had gone about a mile, they came across a big party of country people with whom they mixed, and when the police came up with them, it was impossible to tell gunmen from peasants. Probably the former were busily engaged cutting turf, while the latter looked on. Their arms were passed to the women, who hid the rifles in the heather, and secreted the pistols and ammunition on their persons. During the whole long fight, Father John attended to wounded, cadet and gunmen alike, always to be seen where the fight was hottest, and though his calling was conspicuous from his clothes and white collar, yet on several occasions the gunmen deliberately fired on him when attending to a wounded cadet. After the Battle of Glenmuck, the flying column was seen no more in that district, and for weeks the local volunteers gave Jones no trouble. Time after time, Jones had received information that certain young men in and about a knock carried arms, but whenever they were surprised in a shop or pub, no arms could be found on them, and it was noticed that they always moved about in the company of certain girls. Soon after the Battle of Glenmuck, the bells of the district received the shock of their lives when shopping in a town some miles away with these young men. About noon, four Crossley loads of cadets suddenly dashed into the town with two women searchers dressed in dark blue uniforms, and that day the first real haul of revolvers and automatics was made. As usual, the men passed their arms to the girls directly they saw the auxiliaries arrive, but this time no notice was taken of the men, while the girls, who on former occasion had stood looking on and jeering at the cadets, found themselves quickly rounded up and the women searchers soon did the rest. After this, the moral effect of the women searchers was so great that not a girl in the district dare carry arms or even dispatches. The girls were not sure whether the searchers were women or young cadets dressed up as women, and this uncertainty greatly increased their alarm. About six weeks later, Jones found out that a much-wanted Dublin gunman called Foy, who had murdered at least two British officers in cold blood, was hidden in the district and was being fed by his mother and sister, who lived about two miles from Anah. Time after time the cadets tried to surprise Mrs. Foy, or her daughter, carrying food to Foy's hiding place, but always in vain. Foy's presence soon began to be felt in the district. Two cadets, returning off leave in mufti and unarmed, were taken out of the train and murdered just outside the station, their bodies being left there for all who passed to see, and no man dared to touch the bodies until the police arrived. Next, the cadets were ambushed twice in one week, both times unsuccessfully. Father John, who had hoped that at last his parish had returned to the paths of peace, was furious and denounced from the altar all men and women who shielded murderers. Finally, after the murder of the two cadets, he refused holy communion to Mrs. Foy and her daughter, which is a very serious step for a priest to take. And when remonstrated with, he replied that sooner than not denounce and punish murderers and those who aided and abetted them, he would throw off his coat and become an auxiliary. 
More power to you, Father John. End of chapter 16